Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations, to find my backlist of interviews, or to check out my summer reading guide for 2023, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. There is also a link to the summer reading guide in the show notes. I am thrilled to announce that I have launched a new Patreon level for those interested in accessing even more unique bonus content. My original level, called Page Turners, still includes my popular early reads program, where patrons have access to monthly early digital reads through NetGalley, and exclusive pre-publication author chats, as well as monthly bonus episodes and fun surprise content. My new level is entitled Lit Lovers and includes all of the page turners benefits, as well as access to my new Traveling Galley program, where patrons have early access to at least three to four new titles a month that are in print galley form and are passed along to other members, a monthly fiction-nonfiction pairing episode, a monthly episode containing bonus spoiler-filled interviews with three authors, and finally, read-alike requests via email. Lit lovers can send me a book they loved, and I will respond with similar titles. This was such a popular and time-consuming add-on for me that I am moving it off of my main show. My true love is author conversations, and I want to be able to keep that focus on the show. Today, Wendy Walker returns to chat about what remains. Wendy is the author of Psychological Suspense. Her novels have been translated into 23 foreign languages, have topped bestseller lists both nationally and abroad, and have been optioned for television and film. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome, Wendy. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I am great as well, and I always enjoy chatting with you, and I cannot wait to talk about what remains. Oh, me too. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. And I wanted to tell you that you and Megan Miranda had done this fabulous Patreon episode a few months back where you talked about thrillers and writing them and the state of the industry, and that has been one of my most popular Patreon episodes. So I just wanted to let you know that, that it was so well-received. 
Oh, I'm so pleased. That was so much fun. I love talking with other authors. It was so much fun. And I felt like I learned a lot. And that's what everybody else said as well. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad. Well, let's talk about what remains. Let's start out with you giving me a quick synopsis. Yeah. So what remains is about um, a cold case detective named Elise Sutton. And she is sort of going about her life when she uh, is put in a situation where she takes one life to save another in the line of duty. And this is an incredibly traumatic event for her. But what makes it worse is that the man whose life she saved becomes obsessed with her and wants a connection with her. And when she doesn't provide that, he stalks her and her family. And so she has to use all of her skills and her knowledge to stop him. And she's doing all of this while she is in the midst of, you know, still reeling from this trauma. So she makes a lot of bad decisions and she goes pretty dark. And yeah, so you, it's really her story. And so there's a lot of forensic science, a lot of forward action, but also a big sort of emotional punch to the story as well. How did you come up with all of the ideas for this one? So the original idea came when I was just driving around listening to the news and there was a shooting in Colorado um, at a grocery store. And the, for some reason, the bystanders, the witnesses who had made it out of the store had sort of gathered and first responders were coming and the news media, were, the press was already there before the you know witnesses could be sort of corralled and and sort of organized by the first responders. So they were speaking to the press, like as soon as they left the store and, and giving firsthand accounts of what had happened. And then they disappeared. Uh, Then it turned to, you know, the, the victims, the perpetrator, the, the first responders. And I thought, wow, their voices and what they went through, you could hear it in their voices, the trauma they had just um, experienced. And I wondered what happens to them when they go home and everyone sort of thinks, well, you know, just, you should be grateful and lucky that you're alive and you weren't hurt and no one you love was hurt. But these people experienced a significant trauma. And so I, I started to wonder, you know, what the, the ripple effects, you know, that would cause in their lives. And from there, I decided to, you know, make it, take it one step further and make someone actually involved in the incident. And then I thought, well, what if it's a cop and that, you know, and then the cop is, is suffering the trauma, but really is hailed a hero and is expected to sort of rise to the occasion and accept medals and give interviews and do all of this. um, When really she feels traumatized by being there, but also by having to take the life of this man who um, came into the store with a gun. And so that was where the idea came from. That is something that so many people are experiencing on a sadly regular basis today. How did you feel about writing about it? Yeah. So, you know, I knew it was going to be tricky. I knew I was going to get some raised eyebrows from my team and and certainly from Hollywood um, because, you know, all of my work has been optioned um, at one point or another. And, you know, so I kind of know like which topics are sort of hot button topics to avoid, but I just wanted to write this story. And so I did, I took a draft and tried to rework it. So it was not, you know, a shooting in a department store. And by the way, no one is, no one else is hurt in this 
um, scenario except for the shooter himself. So it's he's firing the weapon, but he doesn't actually hit anybody. And you find out what was going on as the plot unfolds. So there's not a lot of violence. There's really not nothing graphic. It's really described from the perspective of Detective Elise Sutton and what she's experiencing. But even so, I tried a draft where she went into a um, like a mini mart, like a you know at a gas station, and and happened upon a robbery, and where the same you know situation unfolded, where she takes takes one life to save the life of another man, and it just did not land. It did not have the same impact. It really did not explain her trauma and the trauma of the man whose life she saved. Um, so I, I just went back and, and I, and I wrote it back in the original way. And I think it's been really well received. I don't know what it'll look like when we try to take it for an option in Hollywood, but you know, you can't always write, you can't write in a box like that because otherwise we'll all be reading the exact same stories, things that, you know, are palatable now or that aren't, aren't hot buttons now. But that changes all the time. And think about all the stories we would lose hearing and listening to and reading if we all were afraid to, you know, to write about things that might be controversial. And I honestly, I don't see why this is controversial because it does happen so often. The book does not take a position on gun control or anything like that. I have my own views, of course, but that's not what this book is about. It's about trauma. And the reality is that there have already been over 200 mass shootings in the United States this year. And all of those people who are witnesses and who are in the same building, um, know people who are there, they all have trauma and they are going forward in their lives we are going to be interacting with them. They are going to need help. They are going to need understanding and maybe therapy and to process because there are stages to recover from trauma. And if you don't, if it's not acknowledged that you suffer trauma, you may not know that you should be allowing yourself to go through these stages. And if you don't, it can really impact your emotional health down the line. So I feel like as a community, we should be you know, really talking about this more from the standpoint of just emotional well-being of people involved, in addition to whatever else people want to talk about on the on the you know political side and law enforcement side. But this piece is what it is. It's happening, and to deny it is I, it makes no sense to me. Well, you covered several things that I wanted to talk about. I remembered from our Patreon episode that you said. You didn't get involved in the gun control issues. There's not a politics side to this story. It is more there was a shooting and what happens to the people going forward. So I wanted to make sure that was out there and you covered it. And then the second part is I agree with you in terms of understanding what people are going through. I always say that fiction is such a great way to impart some of these ideas, thoughts, help people have sympathy for other people, or maybe think about things they hadn't thought about. I mean, I think you're exactly right. If you witness something like this, whether you're injured or not, you still witness the whole thing. It's got to be so traumatizing. And with the number of mass shootings happening on a regular basis, that's a lot of people that are being traumatized. Absolutely. And all, you know, all kinds of trauma. I, most of my books deal with some kind of trauma. 
it's what my training was in when I was a family law attorney. Uh, it's just what, what I find fascinating. And I think so much bad behavior and criminal behavior and, you know, is the result of conditions that begin with, with trauma, especially in early childhood and so much depression and anxiety, suicide, so many things result from unprocessed trauma that just stays with us. And, um, so yeah, I, I really felt good about being able to write about it. And I really, once I made that decision, I really have not looked back. I think we're going to start seeing more of those type of stories. My husband and I watch Law and Order, which I know has been on for a thousand years, but we just watch it because it's easy and sometimes late at night when we want something to watch. And there was just recently a story about a man who committed a crime because he was traumatized from witnessing a shooting. And so I think it's something that is going to start showing up in TV and books and movies and things like that, because people are realizing it's a real problem. Yeah. And, and, you know, all of my books, there's some, there's some kind of trauma that's, uh, that, you know, that was this sort of initiating event for whatever's happening with the characters. Um, and we're seeing it a lot more depicted in a lot more of our, of our television shows and cop dramas, where it's not just good guys and bad guys, but where there's nuance, right. And, and the, and the good guys, the, I guess the, the law enforcement or the investigators, they suffer trauma too. And, and what they have to deal with emotionally, I think is, hasn't really been explored that much in, uh, in our, uh, sort of vernacular of, of entertainment. So, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really important. And I think people are going to be interested by it. I think so. And learn from it, I think. Yes. Yes. So what kind of research did you have to do? So I, it, this book was the most interesting book to research because I, I, I was able to do, you know, some research online for forensic science, some of the specific things I needed to, to learn about. There's a whole separate little plot line going on involving a hunting shelter in the woods with a cremation oven for the animals. And so I had to, you know, had to sort of do some research into that, which was really interesting, but I could do that online. But for my detective, I have this wonderful cold case detective who lives in my community, who's been really, um, you know, a sounding board for many of my books when I have crazy questions. And she usually, you know, the first line of her response is sometimes LOL, because, you know, it's, you know, the questions that, that, that we thriller writers come up with are, you know, kind of crazy sometimes and not necessarily seen in everyday law enforcement. But I had a long conversation with her this time uh, about her work because I was writing a character who works in her field. And it was just so, so incredibly fascinating. We went way off topic for what I originally needed for the book, but her stories, I ended up weaving them in with her permission, of course, just into the, you know, the, the sort of backstory for my detective and also the emotional impact on the people who do this kind of work. I think we, we often think that, you know, you have to be sort of chasing a bad guy down the street or discovering, you know, someone in the act of something or, you know, apprehending a suspect at gunpoint, that kind of thing to, to have, you know, a real emotional response in law enforcement. But what she was saying is that when you pull a case, a cold case from wherever it's, it's being stored and, and she decides, she and her partner decide which cases they're going to take on. That decision alone has an emotional impact because 
she is then deciding which families might finally get justice, might finally get closure. And there are so many cases that she and her partner could choose. And so that decision alone, it feels sort of weighty and powerful. And then when they are able to do that and sort of go back into the lives of these families that have started to heal and reopen those wounds sometimes, sometimes then healing them, but sometimes just reopening them to still have no good result for them. Um, she said, it's just, you're, you're immersed in other people's sorrow. And that was so profound because it's a different kind of impact on law enforcement than I think what we see or what we generally think about when, when we think about, you know, people who are in that line of work. That would be so difficult to be the one to decide which cold case you wanted to pick. Yeah. And it was, what was so interesting too, was that she said, you know, a lot of, a lot of jurisdictions just don't have a lot of funding for this kind of work. And so, you know, they'll, they'll get a case. And a lot of times these cases are so old that they are not even in like a database and a digital database. They're just in files in the basement, dusty files. And, you know, you'll pull it out and, and there'll be a piece of clothing with DNA that's never been put into the system, never been run, um, in CODIS or anything. And so then, you know, then it's a matter of, okay, well, having, she said, then you'll, you'll sort of get all these suspects and, you know, their DNA is usually not, not in the system anywhere. Although with 23andMe and Ancestry.com, like a lot of DNA is actually available now for um, matching. Um, and it's, I think it's a growing issue of how much privacy we can expect from those, those services. But, but in any event, she will then get a list of suspects and track them down. And sometimes they're all over the country or even the world. And they sort of go and and sort of do stakeouts and then just try to collect DNA from dust from a vacuum cleaner or a, a cup that's been sitting, you know, at, if they're at a restaurant, they'll just go and snatch up the coffee cup they were drinking from and they'll run the DNA against, you know, what was in the box from the victim or from the, the crime scene. And, and, and if it's not a match, then they cross that person off the list and they just keep, <laughs> they keep going down the list. I thought, Wow, like that is just amazing, you know? Like it's fascinating and and not what you would think. You know, just very very sort of analog in one sense to be just grabbing coffee cups and dust from vacuum cleaners, very low tech and yet, you know, then high tech because they can then run it and, you know, run the DNA that they collect. I just thought it was fascinating and and so, you know, she said they have great discretion in how they're going to run their cases and reinvestigate because they're not active cases. And so they're just, they have to sort of make up the rules and the system for how they're going to, you know, try to find an answer to a crime that, you know, that is, is really old. And I do think you're right, the balancing of the high tech and the low tech, because the technology has changed dramatically since a lot of these crimes occurred. So they can do so much more and find out so much more but they still have to get the the evidence to be able to do that. It's really, it is fascinating. Yeah, it was, I mean, I, we talked for hours and I, and I thought I'm, I'm going to have to use like so much of this stuff in the book because it's really fascinating. So the the book ended up being, I mean, I, one of, one of the um, reviewers, uh, authors who reviewed it said that, you know, it, it sort of, it dips into a bunch of genres. So it kind of goes into cop dramas, police procedurals, forensic, you know, science, 
uh, mysteries, psychological thrillers, and stalker thrillers. So it really does sort of touch on all of those different types of, of mysteries and thrillers. But it was just, it was so much fun to be able to do that and weave those stories together and make a complete story because that is her life. She does all of these things and all of these things were happening to her in, in the book. So to be able to dive into them was, um, was really wonderful. Absolutely. Just runs the gamut of the different type of thriller it could be. The thing that cracked me up when I was looking on Goodreads was that a number of reviewers said, well, Wendy Walker has taught people how to commit the perfect murder. Ah, yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, that's, that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, because, yeah, so she, you know, when, when this uh, man decides that he's going to, he has a master plan. He's not just trying to torment her, but when he's, he is, you know, trying to infiltrate her life, he has gone into a class portal for a class that she used to teach on forensic science called how to, I think how to commit the perfect murder, think like a criminal. And so what was kind of fun about the story then is she ends up in a, in a sense playing this dangerous cat and mouse game with herself because he knows everything that she knows. And when they first connect, she doesn't know that he's a sort of a damaged psychopathic man. She thinks she's just found the man whose life she saved, who sort of, you know, just ran out in the chaos that day. And she's desperate for answers about the exact moment when she saved his life because she can't remember if he had run for cover when she took the shot. Like it's it, it, memory, you know, we, it's well documented that when we are in an extreme situation where the fight and flight chemicals are surging through us, we do not retain any unnecessary memories. So she cannot remember the exact moment and she has to just go on on and trust her her judgment that she would not have pulled the trigger if she didn't have to. But it's such a relief when she when she finally connects with this man who calls himself Wade and that she tell that they talk for a long time. They have like a two hour conversation, which is not in the book. I just, you know, <laughs> I just say that, you know, they've talked for a long time. So don't worry, there's not a long chapter that goes on for two hours. And but she tells him a lot about her life and about her class. And so, you know, he's really able to go and extract all of this information and then use it against her. So I just love that. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah. And it's it is he you know, it's the first thing is, you know, first you burn the body. And it's, you know, it's that was fascinating, too, because the cremation of a body the DNA is destroyed or sometimes mutated and even bones. I mean, this is a little gruesome, but even bones, they sort of, they get damaged. So sometimes you can't even tell, you know, a lot of times you find, if you find a skeleton, you can tell even gender, right? You can tell gender, you can tell age. Sometimes you can tell, you know, if it was a child or an adult about how old or how tall even with, a, with different bones. But when the bones are burned, even if they you know, are, you know, still solid, they have been shrunk and they just are contorted. So you, you can't always tell, you know, much from them. I thought that was really fascinating. Of course, I had to put that in the book. Of course. <laughs> of course. Well, what surprised you the most when writing What Remains? Oh, you know, I think what was most surprising was the way that I ended up shaping her marriage. So Originally, you know, she I just had her married with children and sort of 
nothing really, nothing to see here, you know, just like sort of happy in her marriage. And then there were, of course, going to be problems because, she, you know, she suffered a trauma. And one of the most interesting things was in, in sort of doing a deep dive on trauma psychology was learning that that you are never the same person when you come out the other side. You can heal and you can get back to your your normal life, but you're not the same person you never will be. It's like having a scar on your body that can't be fixed. Um, it's always there. And so what can happen is, you know, the, the people you're closest to, your loved ones, they want you to be back to the person you were, and they are always looking for that person. They're looking for you to get back to normal. And there's like a subconscious thing that some people feel, which is a fear that when they can't do that, when they come out the other side with these scars from the trauma, that they will not be loved by their family or by their spouse in particular, because they're not the same anymore. And so that feeling of if I show myself, I will not be loved creates this kind of loneliness because you're, you're not alone, but you don't feel seen. And that is like the deepest kind of loneliness that there is to be actually in the presence of people that you want to love you and you feel that they don't see you or, and that they don't love who you really are and that you can't show them who you really are. And so that was where I thought the marriage was going to go in the book. And it's not, you know, the main part of the book, but it's definitely in, you know, a reason she doesn't turn to her husband for help in dealing with this man. But then I started writing a scene. I was like, oh, I guess, I guess he had an affair four years ago. And I guess the mistress is, you know, the woman he had the affair with is going to be part of the plot. And that got written in. And it's been really interesting because you know, some people are like, oh, what's with the husband? Why would she stay? I don't like the husband. And, you know, for me, I love I love a complicated relationship. I love throwing in a curveball because that's reality. I mean, a lot of people, you know, they do have these things in their marriages and they do forgive their spouses and they do move on. And so that made, for me, it made writing that story so much more interesting because here they are, you know, they already have glued their marriage back together and now all these wounds are being reopened. And so, yeah, so that was a, that was surprising to me where that storyline went. That's always so interesting to me when authors say that, that you sit down to write something, you think it's going to go one way, and then it just totally takes you in a different direction. That's fascinating to me because I don't write. So it's not something that would happen to me. And I just find it so interesting. Yeah. And it, it's happened to me a few times. I usually, I plot everything pretty carefully. So when it does happen, it's, you know, it's, it's fun, but then sometimes I have to go back and thread through, you know, the whatever's changed. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how that happens. I don't know where it comes from. I'll just be writing, you know, you're writing a scene and you know, they're having a conversation or something. You think, Oh, what? It, oh. And here, like now they're going to talk about this thing in the past and, oh, maybe that did happen. Maybe that's kind of cool to bring in. So yeah, that's kind of the fun of it because I do plot. I love to stick to my plot. Um, so I don't wait around for those things to happen, but when they do, it's really, it's fun. I love that. What about choosing character names, especially in an instance like this, when you have a topic that is probably going to be a little more stressful to write about and to read about? Oh yeah. So Character names are so hard. I actually have a spreadsheet now because this is, you know, I'm many books in now and I don't like to repeat main characters' names. And so, 
you know, but it gets a little difficult when you've used all the, you know, popular names for men and women. And yeah, so for last names, I actually go, I have an old phone book. They don't deliver them anymore, but I kept one from years ago. And I'll just go in the phone book and start perusing names. Like maybe I need a name that begins with D or M. And I just start looking. I try really hard to find names that are not going to be identified with any particular religion, ethnicity, background, you know, any just just like, you know, just sort of names you would see in the phone book, you know, <laughs> in in a, in, a, in a town like mine, just a wide variety, but nothing um, because I don't I don't want to detract from the story with a name. So, so I don't choose a name that's going to you know, or, or that's maybe an actor's name, you know, or, or a politician. So that somebody's going to then start associating that name with a particular type of person, because that person's famous, if that makes sense. So, you know, I wouldn't name, give a last name Clooney, you know, and people are like George Clooney. And then all of a sudden they're picturing my character, you know, looking like George Clooney. So yeah, I try to avoid those, but otherwise I just, I, I try to choose a name that, that just, don't become a part of the story. Don't don't sort of conjure up any particular images for the reader, hopefully. And then because I want them, I want them, the characters to have their own personalities and personas. And for first names, that's really tricky. This character, I don't know how I came on the name. I have my, I have a list of names that I haven't used yet and that I like. And so I just sort of peruse those and say, okay, which one seems to be this character. And, and I always start with first names because, um, then I try to have the last names sound, you know, sort of easy on the mind and easy to be performed by audio performers. Yeah. So that's how I choose names, but it's, it is tricky. And actually what was fun in this book was the man who's, uh, the bad guy, I guess you would say he uses a couple of different aliases and he chooses names that are really, really hard to Google. So I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but some names are impossible to Google. So the first name he gives is Wade Austin. And so if you type that in, you will get every person named Wade in Austin, Texas. <laughs> so um, it's very, very hard to tell Google. I mean, now with AI, you probably could. Like every man named Wade Austin who doesn't, you know, not necessarily living in Austin, Texas. But Google doesn't recognize that. And so, and the other one was Fisher brand he uses. And, you know, so then you get everything with the Fisher brand, right? Fisher toys, Fisher. So that was fun to try to come up with names that were hard to Google. And then I would put it in Google and, you know, make sure that it was difficult. But now actually with AI that I I don't know that I could duplicate that because AI is much smarter than just regular search engines. I try to just, because I don't want to detract from the story, unless it's important to the story that you know, that someone come from a, a, like, you know, like someone who's Irish, I will, you know, I'll try to find a name that's, that would, would, I, I will Google, you know, um, popular Irish uh, surnames, but I rarely do that. So, yeah. Well, that's interesting. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. Oh, okay. Um, so I recently read Notes on an Execution, which was really good, really, really good. Um, one of my go-to books, and I'm waiting for her next one. It's not that new, um, but not many people know about it. It's called Girl A by Abigail Dean. She's a British writer, and she has another book coming out, I think, next year. 
And that book I just devoured. I read every word. It was so compelling. So yeah, I tend to read books that are very emotional and dark, darker than what a lot of people in, you know, who read thrillers would read. I tend to write darker too, but I don't write as dark <laughs> as I read, if that makes sense. Um, because I am aware that my tastes are somewhat different from the mainstream. But those two books were really, really good, just so well written and interesting and, you know, sort of hanging just when I hang on every word, and I'm not just fast forwarding to get to the twist or the end of, you know, the reveal and who done it kind of thing. But when I'm really, really sort of just sitting with what the characters are going through, and and reading the words that are describing it, but then it's really resonating. And so I end up really reading every word because um, experiencing that feeling um, is a way of processing fear. And that's my whole theory on why we are so drawn to crime and crime drama and crime stories is that it's our way of, of processing the fear of these things happening to us in a way that is somewhat safe because it's fiction. And with true crime too, it's happening with to someone else, not to us. So, yeah. So those are two books that I've been that I really enjoyed. That's so interesting that you like to read darker than you like to write. Yeah, I really do. And and this book, What Remains, and the book that's coming out next year, which is called um, Kill Me Softly, are both sort of going back to my thriller roots and my first couple of books, which are deeply psychological and emotional and darker, but they, I've also, you know, learned how to write a faster structure. So they'll still have that sort of fast paced feel of my second two thrillers, um, especially don't look for me, but with the, hopefully the emotional punch and the, and the, um, the psychological deep dive that, that I, that I love to, I love to um, incorporate into my books. And I'm sure the longer that you write, and the more books you have coming out, the more you've learned and you can incorporate those different elements. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's really what's so wonderful about this job career is that I'm always learning, like having these aha moments, like, wow, oh, I want to do that with my next book. That's so cool. That's so, it's such a great way to, you know, to sort of examine something or tell, tell one, of the, one of the points of view. And yeah, so it's, I'm always learning. I love that. I feel like I'm always learning when I'm reading, but it's not about the craft part of it, but it's about just different elements that are in a story or learning to understand somebody better or something. That's one of my favorite things about reading. Yeah. And that me too. And that's really great when a book can do that. And I try to do that. I try to provide, you know, I think when people read what remains, they will learn things about trauma and trauma recovery that they probably didn't know. And about the, you know, the stages of recovery and you know, and the, the impact on families and the, this, the sort of subtle things that, that people experience, you know, in their lives going forward. Most definitely. Well, Wendy, thank you so much for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really appreciate it. And it was so much fun to chat again. Yes. Thank you for having me. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, 
We explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts From a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.